You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 127, Basic Programming. Hello and welcome to episode 127 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is Sunday, March 10th, 2013, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. Today on You Don't Know Flack, we'll be talking about the Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code, otherwise known as BASIC. The music you hear in the background is from the video game Viper Phase 1, for no particular reason, really. I, uh was playing some shoot 'em up games in MAME over the weekend, and uh, this is one I played, and I liked the music. So I went out on Google and found the music. Someone had ripped it out, and here we are. So first of all, I'd like to welcome everybody to Daylight Savings Time. It is 10 p.m. today, uh, which is pretty late for me to be recording You Don't Know Flag. Normally I record uh, first thing in the morning on Sundays, but... Uh, I was out of town all last week. I put in a really long week, and so um, I was kind of getting caught up on sleep this morning and uh, had a few other things to do, so I decided to do it tonight after everybody went to bed. So here we are. It's 10 p.m. Yesterday it was 9 p.m. this time, but today it's 10 p.m., so here we are. By the way, I hate daylight savings time, and um, I really wish we'd get rid of it, but um, that is a podcast for another day. I posted a post earlier in the week that I destroyed my Franklin Ace 1000. Uh, You've heard me mention on several podcasts that um, the second computer we owned as a family was a Franklin Ace 1000, which was an Apple II compatible machine made by Franklin. And um, I don't know why I stack things. I, I stack things, I build shelves, I stack things on shelves, I make piles, I pile things on top of piles. I'm really bad at stacking things. And I guess at some point, uh, I stacked, I was moving some things out in the garage, and I stacked my Franklin Ace 1000 on top of my golf cart, uh, which has a uh, roof on it that's about, I guess it's about six foot tall, because I'm six foot tall, and it's just high enough where I can't see on top of it. So, um, uh, turns out the other weekend, uh, I took the golf cart out for a stroll with the Franklin Ace on top of it and didn't know it until I hit the brakes and the Franklin Ace went flying. It was in the middle, I mean, I was uh, like halfway down the block. So I hit the brakes and all of a sudden, uh, it was kind of an odd experience to hit the brakes and then see a Franklin Ace 1000 computer go flying in front of you. (laughs) Not expected. Uh, But yeah, the Franklin did not survive the, uh, uh, I was going to say fall, but it was more of a launch from the golf cart. Uh, Case broke has road rash. Uh, there's at least six keys I didn't find and another six that were broken, including the space bar. And um, so anyway, I salvaged what I could out of the Franklin Ace 1000, but that machine's toast. So there's a lesson for me not to stack old computers on top of the golf cart. So that's uh, a lessons learned for me this week. 
uh, like I mentioned, I spent most of the last week uh, on the road. I went down to uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area for work. I think my timesheet for the week has about 65 hours on it. We're starting a new project that's going to last about three months, so I have three months of that to look forward to. Whenever I travel, I always take things like my iPad, and um, on this trip, I took my, um, you know, I got the uh, iCade for Christmas, but I also got the iCade 8-Bitty, which is a NES-style controller, but it's Bluetooth, so it works with the iPad. So I took that. I also recently bought a Super Nintendo-style gamepad. Uh, I think I got it from ThinkGeek, actually, but it's USB. So you can plug that into your laptop. And then I took my normal um, USB stick for road trips that has MAME on it and uh, WinVice, my two emulators of choice. WinVice is, of course, a Commodore 64 emulator. Uh, and it's amazing how many Commodore 64 games you can stick on a 32 gig USB stick. But I took all these things with me and pretty much used none of them. Uh, you know, Monday through Thursday, I was averaging 12 or 13 hours a day so, uh, you know, we would um, meet for breakfast at 7 a.m., hit the road, be at the office by 8, get back to the hotel by 10 p.m. or so, sit down, watch Family Guy or whatever's on at that time, and uh, go to sleep and, and repeat. So I had, like, zero time. I had all these great ideas. I was going to write this podcast. I was going to do all these um, work on a book that I'm working on. Uh, book, you say? Yes, I'm still writing. Uh, but pretty much I did nothing. I worked and I slept. So, uh, so this weekend I caught up on sleep and I slept in this morning. Uh, but here we are now at nine slash 10 PM. Stupid daylight savings time. I got a couple of emails last week. Uh, the first is from a friend of mine, Josh Risner. Uh, Josh, I know from the local arcade circles. He lives up in Tulsa, which is a couple hours uh, northeast of me. Um, Josh wrote in uh, with some comments about the uh, NES episode, the last episode I did about the Nintendo, and he talked about uh, when he got his and the Christmas of 87, and that he, uh, along with Super Mario Brothers, he had Legend of Zelda, Spy Hunter, and Tag Team Pro Wrestling. He says, don't laugh at that one, but I actually like that game. I mean, it's a horrible game, but I played it a lot. Um, but uh, anyway, he also talked about playing Castlevania, uh, which is a game I don't think I've ever played. I probably shouldn't say that on the podcast. Some people will come after me, but I don't think I've ever played any Castlevania uh, game. And that he still has his NES deck, but uh, he sold most of his games to a place in Tulsa to get a TurboGrafx-16, which is not a bad trade. Um you know, you can buy a lot of common NES games back right now pretty cheap, so he probably did okay on that. But his question uh, was that since I moved, and I moved to a new house about a year ago, uh, he wanted to know how many of my arcade games did I get rid of and which ones do I still have left. And he also wanted to know if I have a smaller arcade setup in the house now. Well, um, so for those, I think I've covered this on the podcast, but if you're a new listener... In our old house, I had a um, shed in the backyard that the uh, previous owners had built a shed and made it a uh, heavy-duty workshop. So it had a uh, its own electrical box, and it was wired for, like, I don't even know what that guy must have been doing in there. I mean, you could run, like, ten table saws. 
and plus it was hooked up uh you know for the pool filter and all that so it was super heavy duty wiring and so uh, when i moved in uh for my 30th birthday my wife susan surprised me and, and you know for like the first year that we lived there two years there was nothing in there i mean it was just junk that the people had left the previous owners had left like old wood and you know carpet remnants and just crap in there we never i didn't even go in that uh building for like two years and then uh, my wife and some of my friends and her family turned it into a retro arcade for me for my 30th birthday so they put in um uh, a bar a wood bar that somebody built and I had owned two arcade games at that time. Uh, I had Shinobi and I had Bucky O'Hare. And my dad bought me a slot machine and someone, I think my mom got me a microwave. Uh, and then they all went in and got me an air hockey table. So we turned it into an arcade. Um, and that's when I started buying arcade games. And so uh, I started off with two arcade games. And when we moved into this house uh, about a year ago, I had 30 arcade games over there. And so basically our new house is um, kind of a different style. It has a smaller backyard um, that opens up into a, a big giant pond. So the actual land I own now is more, but the backyard space is less. And I don't have room to put a giant shed in the backyard that would hold 30 arcade games. I also have a three-car garage uh, in this house. Um which is so full of stuff. If you've ever been in any of my garages, I mean, there are shelves full of old floppy disks and old computers and arcade marquees and tools and crap and, um, you know, boxes of Atari games. I mean, there's, uh, right now I can't get a car in a three car garage, which is, you know, ridiculous. But anyway, um, so out in my garage right now, I have six arcade cabinets left. Um, one is, um, well, let's see, I have a commando machine, which I have promised to donate to the Arcadia Retrocade. I just need to basically haul it over to Arkansas. So, uh, commando is probably the nicest, one of the nicest machines I've ever owned. Actually, it's, um, in, just in super good condition. It works hundred percent. Um, I tried selling it. Um, I actually tried selling it for a long time for 200 bucks and I couldn't get anybody to come buy it. So... Uh, I just made the mental decision that instead of, you know, basically giving it away to somebody on Craigslist, I'd rather give it to a place that I know it's going to get played and to somebody that I know who will appreciate it. So um, I've already told uh, Shay over at Arcadia Retrocade, the arcade that I talked about a few uh, episodes ago, that I'm going to donate this machine to uh, Arcadia. I just need to get it over there. But I have that machine, and then I have a... Midway um, Multicade. I think it's, um, I don't remember what it is, like 20 games in one, something like that. I don't know. It's not a, not a full like 60 or 100 in one or whatever. Maybe it's 30 in one, whatever. But uh, uh, it's not a Midway. Sorry, it's a Multi Williams. Uh, so it has Defender, Joust, Robotron, things like that. But these are all games that really depend on the controls like defender has a very unique control set you know and so um the way this cabinet's wired up it's not authentic in other words um when you play defender you just use a joystick to fly around instead of the normal button scheme and so uh, i don't love the machine it works 100 percent, but it's been sitting on the garage and hasn't been turned on 
in months. It also has some non-Williams games on there. It has uh, the original Mario Brothers and Super Mario Brothers and a few other games. I don't know why in these multicades. It's also loaded up with a bunch of crap that you would never, ever play. I don't I don't know why they do that. Why they don't just put games that people would want on there. Um, so I have those two. And then I have a... Uh, I have my Rampart machine, which is another machine that I tried to sell and couldn't get any bites on it, didn't feel like giving it away, so I just hung on to it. The unique thing about my Rampart machine is that it is in a Gauntlet 2 cabinet, so, um, you know, there's a lot of weird conversions out there, and people, you know, arcade owners would take what they could, you know, and upgrade machines to, if something wasn't making money, uh, upgrade it. It's hard to imagine a Gauntlet 2 machine that wasn't making money, but um, someone switched it out and turned it into Rampart, so... Uh, I would sell that machine uh, pretty inexpensively, actually, uh, just because it's giant and I'm ready to get rid of it, but um, I do enjoy Rampart. Uh, I have a main cabinet that I inherited that someone did all the work on and the computer is trash, so I really, um, it has everything ready to go. Uh, IPAC, it's wired up, uh, I've got a monitor in it, I just need to load a machine and then I'll have a, a main cabinet ready to go. Uh, a couple of, oh, I have a 48-in-1, uh, which is the older board before the 60-in-1 and the 100-in-1. Uh, and that machine works. It's not a great-looking machine, but uh, it works good. And then finally, I have 720. And 720 is, uh, if you're not familiar, a classic skateboarding game. And when I first started collecting arcade games, well, as a kid, when I first saw 720, I thought, someday I will own that machine. And I went... I started buying arcade games even before 2003. I started buying arcade games the first time when we moved uh, to El Reno. And I went to my first auction. And that would have been 94, 95. And I kind of made this mental list of games that I would like to own. Like my top 10 list. Like no matter what, where they are, how much they are. Uh, those are the games, you know, that went on my top 10 list. So I was always, I bought a lot of crap back then. I bought a lot of games. I bought games I didn't like just because they were cheap. Um, but uh, 720 was on that list. 720 is on my top 10 games. It's probably on my top three games of all time. Uh, so I started looking for a good working 720 arcade game uh, in 1994. But, I mean, if I'd have seen one before that, if I'd have had the means, I would have bought it. And I got my machine... I have to look this one up here. I wrote a blog post when I got it on PobloHair.com. 720. I know I can find it because the name of the blog post is Holy Grail Acquired. And um, I got my 720 machine from a friend of mine, Dean, uh, in February of 2009. So basically 15 years after I started buying arcade games. Now there had been a couple that had come and gone on eBay and one was I remember it had a it went for around $500 and it was in Denver and I was seriously thinking about buying it. That's how much I wanted a 720 arcade machine. And uh, anyway I, I had uh, actually considered driving to Denver to pick up this machine so it would have been 500 plus you know a few hundred bucks in gas and uh, unfortunately somebody bought it while I was thinking about it so those things um, go really fast but anyway uh, I ended up buying the machine uh, from my buddy Dean who uh, hey that rhymes Dean's machines um, I paid more than double 
uh, I mean, it wasn't, I think I paid 600 for it, which is more than twice what I paid for any other machine I've ever owned. <laughs> I think the next most expensive machine I ever owned was like 300 bucks. Um, so it was a lot of money for me, uh, 600 bucks, but, uh, it's what, you know, it was local and more importantly, I mean, I'd been looking for it for so long and this machine was in great condition. The only thing I didn't have, uh, was the side art and, um, I ended up buying some new old stock side art for it, so uh, which I haven't put on. It's sitting on top of the machine right now in a box. But um, anyway, uh, yeah, so 720, I still have that. So I think that's all the machines I still have. They're out in the garage. They're not set up like an arcade right now. They're, they're in corners of the garage. They're up against the wall. They're, two of them are out in the open, so my wife can no longer park in the garage, which she's thrilled about. But uh, so that is the current state of uh, the Flax Arcade, the Flaccade. It's not too good right now. I don't really have a long-term plan. I don't know. Um, most of the space in the new house that I have is upstairs, and I'm just not uh, wanting to start lugging machines up and down flights of stairs. The stairs go halfway up and then do a, a 180 turn, and then the other half. So it's just really not made for moving arcade machines up and down. Uh, so I don't know. We'll see. Uh, We'll see what happens long term. Maybe I'll, I'll figure something out, but uh, I don't have a plan right now. And, and actually, I'd like to get rid of a few of the ones I have left. So if you're interested in an arcade game and you would like to come to Oklahoma to pick it up, uh, let me know. We'll see what we can work out. This is going to be another one of those really long intros. I'm sorry. I got an audio submission file from uh, Maury Estabrooks, who's been one of my listeners, a Facebook fan, one of my friends online. And uh, Maury lives in uh, Southern California, and he sent me basically just some uh, really cool feedback about some of the uh, podcast episodes he's listened to, and Maury told me that he grew up about eight miles from Disneyland, and so he did a lot of his arcade game playing at the arcade in Tomorrowland, which was called Starcade. I've never actually been to Disneyland or Disney World, but um, I really want to go to the uh, the Star Wars, what's it called, Star Tours or whatever? Um uh, I'd really like to go to that, but uh, anyway, so Maury talked a little bit about that. He told me about um, running a BBS back in the DOS days, and um, you know, going through the same experiences that a lot of us did when uh, BBS users moved on to Prodigy and America Online. And uh, he also talked about how his son uh, plays a lot of Xbox 360, how he was uh, playing a lot of Halo, and I plays Call of Duty and and Minecraft, and um, it really, you know, what it made me think about. A lot of the experiences, and this is kind of one of the reasons why I'm not um, really that interested in rebuilding up the arcade collection like I had. And the reason is is because that's um, the arcade experience, if you will. I mean, growing up, going to Cactus Jacks, going and playing um, Moon Patrol at Homeland, going and spending uh, you know lunch money at the mall and, and playing games and stuff like that. That was my experience growing up, and it's not my kid's experience. And so when I was putting together the arcade in the backyard, um, you know, I had done a lot of that in hopes that my kids would enjoy that experience. In my mind, they would have their birthday parties back there. In my mind, they would be the coolest kids in school uh, when they went to school and told everybody that they had you know, that their dad had, you know, 30 arcade games. And really what it was, when they went to school, none of their kids uh, or none of their friends knew what arcade games were. Um, and, you know, I remember one time where I took Mason out in the arcade, 
and we were playing games and when we were done, I mean, there were two or three that he liked. He liked playing Karate Champ and he liked playing um, Bubble Bobble. But when we were done, or when he was done, uh, basically he said, hey, can I go back inside and play DS? And so that's what it was. It was just, it was like me making them do something that they didn't really want to do, you know? So um, a few times he had some friends over and they played Mortal Kombat and a couple of games like that. But really, I mean, it's like five or ten minutes and they were done. It was the experience they had done it and, um, uh, and then they were over, you know? So that that whole thing of hanging out in the arcade and playing arcade games and doing that with your friends, that was my experience, not necessarily our kids' experience. Maybe someday when, um, you know, my son's 30, he'll talk about the good old days when they used to play Minecraft or they'll have retro Minecraft parties. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, the, the arcade thing, you know, that's basically what it taught me was um, that it was, you know, it's my memories and my nostalgia, not necessarily their nostalgia. So... Uh, but anyway, um, yeah, Maury uh, had sent me this whole thing as a, a, a voice recording that he recorded while he was driving and emailed it to me. It was very cool. Uh, so I really appreciated getting that. Um, so anyway, uh, those are the main feedbacks uh, that I got. Let's check the voice mailbox and see what we have here. You have one message. First message. Hi, this is DJ Johnny Foreskin. Be sure and listen to the You Don't Know Flack podcast, available <laughs> I want to know about my favorite video arcade game, Satan's Hollow. Or specifically, why hasn't Flack actually acquired one yet? And I'm not talking about the main version either. In order to play Saint Tyler, you need a real joystick. <laughs> I'll hang up and listen now. Reception is pretty terrible down here on my hell phone. <laughs> well, I suppose it was only a matter of time before I received a call from Satan. <laughs> Uh, always a surprise for me waiting on the voice mailbox. I love it. Um, so Satan's question, I guess that was actually Satan. It's not actually how I imagined that Satan and I would meet. I thought, um, you know, as a kid growing up in the eighties watching, uh, horror movies, uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, the gate, but basically a kid as a, you know, was playing a kind of, what was a killer dwarves album backwards. Um, and, uh, you know, doing these things, like, somehow I would accidentally or someone would let me borrow a copy of the Necromonicon and I would read Clatu uh, Brada Neptune and somehow I would open a portal to hell in my backyard. That's how I imagine um, meeting Satan, not actually uh, having him call the voice mailbox for my podcast. But that's okay. Um, you know what? I'm open to uh, everybody is welcome to call the voice mailbox line, even Satan. Uh, so Satan's question apparently is why have I never owned Satan's Hollow? And that's a pretty simple answer. Uh, and there's two parts to it. The first part is I didn't play a lot of Satan's Hollow as a kid. We had it um, at the local movie theater is where I think I remember seeing it, which I didn't spend a lot of time playing games at. So, I mean, I might have played it once or twice, but it wasn't a huge part of my childhood, I guess. And the other thing is... Um, you know, once I really started collecting arcade games, 
I ran out of space. Um, you remember me talking about all the things my wife put in the home arcade. Uh, one was an air hockey table, and I had that for a while, and then eventually I got rid of it to make room for more games. And then I pulled the bar uh, out of there to make room for more games. And, uh, you know, pretty much I pulled everything out of there to make room for more games. And eventually I had so many games in the arcade that it was hard to walk through. So, um, you know, with MAME, uh, MAME is really good at playing games that require a joystick and two or three buttons. Um, I mean, just a stock, you know, my system. That, that's what mine was set up to do. Uh, and so, really, what I focused on when I, uh, you know, I, I think everybody goes through this. Like, when you find out about arcade auctions and then you go and you'll buy anything. I was like, you know, I, I've told this before. Um, I went to an arcade and I got a really good deal on Scramble. Uh, which was the helicopter game you fly through the, the cave, you know, and you shoot ships and you drop bombs on things or whatever. And so I got it home and it worked. You know, I think I paid like 50 bucks, maybe 100 bucks for it. I got it home, hooked it all up, uh, and it worked great. And then I was like, oh, I forgot. I hate this game. <laughs> you know, so because it was so cheap, though, I bought it. And people would come over, oh, you have that? You know, yeah. And then I'm like, yeah, but I hate it. And then um, I sold it. And then I went to an auction later and found one for less, like $50. And so I bought that one. It worked fine, too. And so I came home and I'm like, God, why did I buy that? I just, I hate this game and I sold it. And now I bought another one, you know. So uh, for a long time, I would just buy games just to have games, like to fill a spot. You know, if it was working and it was inexpensive, I would pick it up, you know. And so when you start running out of room or money, uh you have to narrow down what you'll buy. And so what I began focusing on was games that were not easily played in MAME with a normal joystick and button. So, like, 720 has a completely unique joystick. No other game has a joystick like 720. Uh, I never owned a, a Tron, but uh, that's one that I would have picked up for the same reason. You know, you have the spinner, the joystick um, with the firing button. It's a pain in the butt to play in MAME. I had a Qbert cabinet which I talked about, and Qbert, uh, of course, you control using diagonal, um, and inside it's actually a four-way stick that's rotated 45 degrees, but, um, you know, still, it's kind of a, if you don't have your main set up that way, it's kind of a pain. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I had road blasters, I had a, a three-player off-road, I, I started focusing on games, either games that I really liked, like Shinobi and Rampart and things like that, um, or games that, you know, the controls didn't lend themselves to be played easily in main. And so Satan's Hollow doesn't really meet either of those requirements. I don't love it. Uh, it's a good game, but I just don't love it. And um, it plays just fine in main. I mean, a joystick and a button and you're good to go. So uh, sorry, Satan, to let you down. Uh, but uh, that's why I do not own your game. So. If any of you have feedback about this episode or any other episode or the show in general... You can always email your feedback to robohara at robohara.com or you can always leave a message for me, just like Satan did, on the You Don't Know Flack voicemail box, which is area code 206-309-9501. I got a couple of quick plugs to get out of the way this week before we get to the show. Uh, the first, as always, is the No Quarter podcast. Uh, those guys are still... Uh, they're on the same schedule I am. They're releasing uh, one episode a week on the weekends, so... Uh, I think they just did uh, uh, Amadar and Circus Charlie, which um, I, I don't think I ever played Amadar. I had it on the 2600, but I don't think I ever played the arcade version. So, uh, 
but they have that version and then circus charlie came out i haven't got a chance to listen to that one yet but i'm looking forward to that so uh those guys are still going strong uh you can find the latest episodes at monsterfeet.com forward slash no quarter or just on facebook look up no quarter podcast also my man ferg is still tearing up his 26 game by game podcast uh so you can find him on twitter at 2600 game by game or on facebook look up uh, 2600 game by game podcast Ferg is planning on going through every Atari 2600 game uh, and doing mentioning them on playing them. He's playing them and, and uh, talking about them on his podcast. And also, uh, Ferg is looking for people who all you have to do is write in. He tells you what game he's going to review next week, and he's looking for people to email in their memories of those games. I think the next one is Outlaw, and uh, I forgot what the other one was. But um, go listen to his podcast. Uh, his his are pretty short. They're like less than half an hour. Go listen to those. And look, I'm over half an hour right now. I haven't even got to the podcast. Jesus. Um, go listen to the podcast. And um, if you have stories, just drop him an email or what. And uh, uh, he'll read your letters on the air. And it's a really cool thing. So anyway, go check those out. Anyway, this episode of You Don't Know Flack was sponsored by Rex Allison. And Rex emailed me a couple of weeks ago and basically said uh, that he didn't have anything to plug. He doesn't have a podcast. He doesn't have a website. He's not selling anything, but he just wanted to uh, sponsor an episode of You Don't Know Flack, which I thought was really cool. And then in his email, he mentioned uh, one of the things he likes to do is program in a language called MIT Scratch, which um, Scratch was written by MIT and it was designed to be a very uh, simple programming language and in fact I had heard about this before because my kid Mason who's in fifth grade at school is in a scratch club and they actually he, he told me one day he had written a game and I, I thought he had written on like the rules to a new game on paper or something but then later he showed me on the internet he had actually written a basketball game where you shot free throws and had to do certain things which I was just amazed so anyway Rex and I emailed back a few times and we started talking about programming and uh, you know how scratch is as kind of an extension from basic and so that's um, what led to this episode so anyway i wanted to thank rex again for sponsoring this episode of you don't know flat if you would like to sponsor an episode uh, you can head over to the website at, which is podcast.robohara.com and click on the sponsors link up at the top and get more information but that's basically all i have for the introduction of this week's episode Haha, basically, see what I did there? So before I have a chance to slip in any other bad puns, let's get started with episode 127 of You Don't Know Flat. As I have mentioned on previous episodes, I actually mentioned this in episode number one, which is uh, 100, actually, due to my sneaky numbering system. Uh, The first computer that we ever owned as a family was the TRS-80 Model 3, and um, my dad got that, brought it home in the spring of 1980, and I don't think it came with any games. I don't remember if it came with any software at all. Um, We didn't even have disk drives for our uh, TRS-80 uh, disk drives uh, later, a few years later. I don't, I don't remember how much they were at launch. I guess I could look that up. But um, uh, later, when we talked about buying them, 
uh, one drive, one floppy drive was another $700 and two was $1,100. So, um, we got the cassette tape adapter, which would allow you to load, uh, and save games in a painfully slow and potentially error prone manner. It was a pretty finicky type system. But uh, anyway, the point of this is that there wasn't a lot of software in the early days. You would go to Radio Shack, which is where we bought our TRS-80, and there was a small little wall uh, that had cassette tapes with software on them in, like, sandwich baggies. So you would go, and, and some would have, like, little cards attached to them or whatever. But, you know, I mean, this is pretty... There's no, like like fancy boxes at this point, um, you know, you would just buy these cassettes and take them home and play them. Um, but many of the cassettes were just programs, basic programs that people had written. Um, and so the way that a lot of people, it's kind of different now, uh, because, and I've talked about this before, but the mentality is flipped where basically now today people say, uh, you know, I want to be able to record music, let's say. So that I have a need, like I have something I want to do, and so I get a computer to help me do that. Or I want to write books, or I want to program games or whatever. So you have that thing you want to do, uh, or I just want to surf the net and do email or whatever. But you have those things that you want to do, and so you buy a computer to help you do them. Uh, but back then, you bought a computer, and then there was no software. Um, you know, or, or very, very little. So a lot of people, I mean, you basically got that computer and then it, you were going to make it work. You were going to come up with the programs to make it do what you wanted. If you wanted a, a program to uh, keep track of bowling scores or a program to, you know, do whatever, uh, you would write it. So it was a total different mentality back then. And then uh, very early on, computer magazines started carrying basic programs. And so you would buy a computer magazine and get it home and type in these, these uh, programs. And some of them had error checking uh, built in. So you would type in the whole program and then you could run some sort of like checksum program. And it would tell you if any of the lines where you had typed things were different than what were in the magazine. And you could easily go find uh, your error. Or, you know, usually if you ran it and you got a syntax error on a certain line of the program, you would know need to go back and look at the magazine. But, there, you know, it's very prone to human error because you're, you're typing in these, you know, they weren't, they weren't small. I mean, they, they could be multi-page programs that you would be you know, typing in. But uh, people were willing to do it because it was a way to get software. It was a free way to get software. So you would type these, uh, type in these long programs. And, of course, they were all written in BASIC. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, BASIC stands for Beginner's All-Purpose Symbolic Instruction Code. And BASIC dates back. Um, there was a version of BASIC on the Altair. This is where you go back into Bill Gates and those guys uh, releasing BASIC. And uh, so it made its way. I mean, it was a way um, on the mainframes originally for people to be able to write their own code, but it made its way to the home computer market. And so it became, you know, people talk about killer apps and uh, obviously um, uh, the one that everybody hears people talk about is VisiCalc with the Apple II. But, I mean, if you think about basic, the language itself, I mean, that's what allowed people to write their own programs with computers. So that was the interface 
that we all had and that we all learned to use. Um, now, we had a neighbor that I've mentioned, Sam Patterson. And Sam, uh, he was probably, I don't know, 10 years older than me, but uh, he had a TRS-80. And so he would write these programs. He would the, the thing that I remember the most, he would write these text adventures and put them on cassette and bring them down to our family. And he wrote one for my sister and one for me. Uh, he wrote one, I think it was like you were stuck in a dollhouse or a Barbie house for my sister. Um, and then uh, he would bring these down and then we would play them, you know. But they were all uh, basic programs. And so that's, you know, where I first got this idea that, you know, whatever you could come up with, you could actually write. And the first program I ever wrote was on the TRS-80. So this is 1980, 1981, which means I'm seven or eight years old, somewhere in there. And I wrote a multiple choice quiz about dinosaurs. So, I mean, very, this is very, very, very simplistic, you know, uh, how many, you know, how many legs does a a T-Rex have? Uh, A, one, two, you know, B, two, like that sort of thing like that. Uh, but at the end it would, tally up your score and tell you, you know, how many you got right and how many you got wrong, things like that. But, um, you know, just being able to do that at that age uh, was really empowering to me, I think. Um, You know, it wasn't just like, as people got the Ataris and Odyssey and Intellivision, you got that system and then you would go buy whatever game you wanted and play it on that, you know, but you were limited to what someone else had done. But with the computer... Uh, you are just limited to your own skills, you know? And so that really pushed us uh, as programmers to learn more about the system, to learn more about basic, to learn uh, tips and tricks and to, to um, you know, just experiment, see what these computers could do. But that's where I started programming uh, in basic was on the TRS-80. And then, as I mentioned, we got rid of our TRS-80, I think, in 1982, and that's when we upgraded to the Franklin Ace 1000, uh, which had a good run until um, it met its untimely demise on my golf cart last week. But uh, 82, 83, this is with the Apple II, even more, maybe into 84, 85, you started seeing a lot of computer camps, like, hey, you know, do you want your kid to succeed later in life? Send him to computer camp. And I, I'd love to hear from any, if there's any listeners out there that went to those computer camps. I never went to one. Um, but, uh, you know, with the Apple II, for me, it was more the same. I don't remember, like, pushing the limits of the Apple II with my basic programmings. Um, one thing I do remember around that time was... You started to see, you know, in the early 80s, all these uh, how to program in basic type books. And they were so generic that they would work pretty much with anybody's version of basic. You know, I mean, it might say, hey, if you have a Commodore, switch lines, you know, 10, 20, and 100 to this other command versus if you have an Apple or whatever. But for the most part, the programs were basic enough that they were interchangeable. So no matter what kind of computer you had, you could just type them in and go. Um, but, uh, yeah, I remember, like, going, even I think the library had a couple of books, like, you know, Learn to Program in Basic, and so you would start getting those, uh, or ordering them from the uh, the school, whatever it was, the Scholastic book thing, you know, I, like, I, I remember ordering one or two uh, books about how to program in Basic. Now, there were things that were more, the things that were more uh, computer-centric were graphics and sound, 
that stuff didn't really tend to translate too well between, um, you know, different platforms. But as far as, you know, basic programs, I'm sure if I were to find the basic code somewhere for that uh, silly little uh, dinosaur quiz that I wrote on the TRS-80, I'm sure it would work just fine on the Apple II uh, or the Commodore 64 or anything else like that. But really, um, that's what I remember about the Apple, just more experimenting, getting those books, and, you know, learning more about how it all worked. So... Uh, I got my Commodore 64 in 1985, maybe, yeah. And um, so I kept playing around with BASIC, and, and one of the things that was a lot simpler to do on the Commodore 64 was uh, you could change colors very easily. You had 16 colors. Um, that was very easy to change colors in programs. Uh, and you could do the keyboard graphics, if you've ever seen a Commodore 64 keyboard, uh, every key has um, two different graphics uh, that it can do. So, actually, if you're in, uh, yeah, so you can hold down a Commodore key for one, or, or if you're in uppercase, shift in the other one. So you can, you know, draw. Uh, actually, there are people that have done astounding, just like um, uh, the ANSI guys uh, that were out there for years and that are still out there. Uh, shout out to Radman. Uh, but the guys that are doing that, you know, I mean, you could come up with some pretty good graphics. Mine were pretty simplistic, obviously. Uh, but you could also do, um, the Commodore had sprites. And so you could, you know, like, I remember using graph paper and plotting out these little different graphics and, and making my own sprites. Um, and you could do, uh, sound as well. I mean, the sound is pretty simplistic, um, you know, doing it at a DOS prompt. But you could do sweeps and, you know, use all the different voice voices built into the Commodore SID chip and, and um if you spent enough time you could come up with some cool stuff. But um one of the things I did a lot, uh and probably not because I needed to, but because I thought it was neat was um I did a lot of my math homework on the Commodore sixty four, so I would write little programs uh that would help me um solve, you know, basic math problems, basic uh you know, I was that's around the time I was in algebra and, um, so that I, I had a, a couple of different programs that I would use that for. Um, so I remember doing that. I also wrote a very simplistic program at one point in time to help me, uh, catalog software. Uh, you know, I was downloading just these giant, you know, amounts of games during that time. And, uh, at first I kept track of everything in a spiral notebook. I would write down each game. Um, but of course it was difficult to sort things, <laughs> Uh, when they were written down on paper. But I uh, did eventually write a program that would just take the entire directory uh, and store it in a, a sequential file. And it was horribly uh, non... Uh, I don't even know what the word I'm looking for. It was terrible, performance-wise, and uh, didn't have any search features. It, it was just um, really crappy. But, um, you know, it was... The idea was there. Like, I, there was a need for it, and... Um, Eventually, I found, uh, I think I used a program called Disk Filer eventually. But, you know, at the time, it was like, you know, there was a need. And so you would, you, um, Basic would let you do that. You you would just go in and try and figure out how to do stuff, you know. And, of course, um, it wasn't like today. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about programming today. But uh, when I need code today, I go into Google. And I guarantee you, somebody's already solved the problem I've done. They did it better than I was going to do it. And they've posted the code online. So, uh, But you didn't have that resource back then. 
Uh, you had your friends. You know, if you went to like a computer meeting or a computer club, you might, you know, have somebody you could bounce ideas off of. But for the most part, you were on your own. So it wasn't today like, um, you know, just having the answers in front of you all the time. You had to figure it was problem solving. It was like puzzles. So you had to be willing to do that. You had to be willing to be stumped uh, to program and to figure things out. So uh, that was a fun part of it, but also a frustrating part of it. And there were many, many programs that I started that never finished for that reason. Um, another thing I remember on the Commodore was CNET BBS, which was a pretty popular BBS system. Most of the other ones were compiled, you know, machine language or, um, or whatever, you know, but they were, um, compiled and compressed so that you couldn't just load it up and, and, you know, list it out like a basic program, uh, and see the contents of the file. But, uh, CNET was a big part of CNET, uh, was in basic. And so, you know, a, a stock CNET BBS, so you would log in and it would say username and you type in your, or your user ID, and then it would say your password and you put in your password. But all that stuff was written in basic. So you could go in and write, you know, do your own graphics and, um, or colors and change the words and change how the menus worked and everything else like that. So my friend, um, Justin Arcane, who ran Ball of Confusion BBS, uh, we spent a lot of time modifying his BBS, going in and doing all this. And um, the actual, I remember the actual program, you would get to a point, that, I mean, you could only put so many characters on a line, and so you were limited to what you could do in some cases. You know, like you would have to go take something out or, you know, like make room for something in the line uh so that you could fit something else in. And if you got the program too big, it wouldn't save. You would just get an error. So, um, you know, then you might have to call out to another program or do something like that. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, something that we rarely deal with anymore today, and that was memory limitations. You know, I mean, there's only so much RAM. I mean, a Commodore 64, in theory, a 64K, but the minute you turn it on, you know, with the... uh, uh, built-in basic and stuff like that you only have what is it like 32k left to play with so um you know you're really limited uh and i mean in one way as a kid it seemed like impossible that you would fill 32k of ram with a program you know but now it's amazing when you go back and look at those machines uh you know what actually could fit into memory it it really is incredible but anyway with cnet bbs you know uh what we did most of the changes we made were cosmetic, but um, my friend uh, Sean actually went in and uh, he had a version. He had he ran a BBS called uh, Doctor Frankenstein's Layer, and his whole BBS he had rewritten it to almost look like a graphic adventure. So you would go and and um, it would draw a map and uh, like in a gray, like an overhead map in gray, and then a little red X after you logged in and you were in the main room. And so you would type like, like a text adventure, like you would go North or South or East or West. And like the, um, the file system was in the tower. So you would go East, um, and then go up into the, the, um, tower. And that's where the upload, download, the files were. And there were, and there was a library in there and that's where you went to go read files. So, um, but just, you know, it was a two part thing. One is because of basic, we had the ability, the technical ability to go change those things, but also it allowed you, you know, if you had those ideas, then you could just make them come to life, you know? So, uh, around the time that I moved to the Commodore, my dad moved to the PC world and, uh, 
Um, you know, BASIC had already been included in versions of DOS. I actually have a copy, let me look what this is right here, of GW BASIC 3.2. So I guess that came with DOS um, 3.2. Uh, there were several different versions of BASIC that came with uh, PCs over the year. There was GW BASIC, which was based on uh, Quick BASIC. Um, and then later on, that turned into Q Basic. So, um, also I remember like having Basic A, uh, and all these other different versions of different flavors. So I think they made a difference if you were, again, like I said, uh, pushing the boundaries of Basic, like doing different things. But I don't think anything I ever wrote pushed the boundaries of anything, really. Um, so, but I remember writing, um, you know, little goofy programs on the PC a lot. The, the most useful thing I ever wrote on the PC was a Dungeons and Dragons character generator. My mom worked at this uh, oil company for a while and she had access to a copier. And so we had bought, my friends and I had bought these advanced Dungeons and Dragons character sheets, um, which when you buy them, they were on this yellow paper which is supposed to do exactly what it did, which is to prevent you from photocopying them. Uh, but we tried anyway. So we sent my mom to work with several of these, and she made copies. And the copies, um, I mean, they looked terrible because it was on this yellow paper. So you would get all this black, like, splotchy parts and stuff, and there were parts you couldn't read. But uh, it was better than, you know, I mean, we had a budget of zero. <laughs> this is like seventh grade, you know. So, uh, I mean we could pool all our change and have like 50 cents between all of us. So, you know, buying these packs of character sheets was really kind of out of the question. Um, so we used those copies for a while, but eventually I thought, you know what? Um, in basic, you could write a program that would output to the printer. And, uh, so anyway, that's, um, what I did was I, I just wrote a very basic program and it had like, it would say name and then it had to underline, you know? So basically I, I tried to, as best I could recreate that form into a basic program, uh, and then you would print it out, you know, so you just run it and it would generate these, um, character sheets. And then later what we did was I had, um, a couple of versions of it. Um, one would allow you to type in all your information. So you would, uh, you know, put in your character's name and what his statistics were and, and you know, whatever. Um, and then it would, print that out. So there would still be blanks like for your inventory and stuff like that and a place, like a, it drew a little box where you would draw your picture. But um, but yeah, so it put all that, um, it would print that out with that on there. And then later I actually made one that would generate non-player characters. So if you were, um, you know, needed a couple of guys to hang out in a tavern or something like that, you would go in and, and just say, uh, you know, you could put in a class and a name and whatever, and it would just randomly generate stats and what race they were or whatever. So, again, very, um, not to use the word again, but basic type program, uh, not a lot to it. But um, uh, back then it seemed like it was pretty cool. I do remember one story uh, involving the Commodore, uh, and this is actually in Commodore, so if you've already bought and read Commodore, you may already know this story, but... Um, uh, around the same time we had gone to, uh, my family had gone to Toys R Us and Toys R Us had, you know, uh, along with video games and stuff, they were also had computers for sale and they had a Commodore set up, but what they had done was the Commodore was inside like a plexiglass box 
um, that covered most of the keyboard, and it had been cut out to where you could type on it. You could type in the keys, but you couldn't get to the power button on the side or anything like that. You couldn't get to the back. You could only get to you know the main keys. Um, and then there was a bigger plexiglass display, and inside that there was a printer and there was a monitor and stuff like that. So the idea was that you could walk up to it and you know punch buttons or something like that, but um, you know not turn anything off or whatever. So I had walked up to this. Uh, like I said, there was a printer inside the display and a monitor and a few other things. So my parents had gone somewhere else in Toys R Us, and I was over the computer aisle. And so um, if you've ever done basic programming, pretty much the simplest program is to write, you know, like line 10, print something, and then line 20, go to 10. And so what that does is whatever you tell it to write on um, line 10, it'll print to the screen. So I had written uh, 10 print Jack Flack rules. And then on line 20, I just wrote go to 10. So what this does is basically creates a loop where it just prints Jack Flack rules forever until you um, break out of the program, which on a Commodore you have to hit run, stop, restore, uh, and it will stop the program. So I'm like, you know, a little kid, like, tee-hee-hee, you know, I'm going to make this say Jack Flack rules. So I type in 10, you know, print Jack Flack rules. Uh, And then 20, I typed run. And so uh, on the Commodore, and I guess on other computers probably as well, uh, there is a command that will switch your output from the computer monitor out to a printer. So um, if you, you know, run a program, instead of it printing on the screen, it will print to the printer. So someone, unbeknownst to me, before I had walked up to this computer, had already done that. (laughs) So I type 10, you know, print Jack Flack rules 20, go to 10. And I type in run, and the screen's not doing anything. And all of a sudden, I can hear the printer going off. And uh, so, you know, this printer starts printing, and I'm like, what is it? You know, and then I look, and of course, it's in this giant plexiglass box that I can't get to. And I look, and all of a sudden, papers, you know, and it's the old school, like, tractor feed paper. And there's a million sheets of it in there, so it's not going to run out of paper anytime soon. And it's printing out Jack Flack rules over and over. And so I'm like, oh, my God. So I try to hit run, stop, restore. But because of the plexiglass thing over the keyboard, you can't hit run, stop. So I really don't have any way to stop this program at this point, you know. And the printer's going, and paper is starting to go through. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Uh, So I just walk away, right? So I walk down and I'm like, act like I'm looking at software, you know, and I can, like, I'm all the way down the aisle and I can hear the printer going off. And you know, when you're a kid, you're like, like, I'm sure that a policeman is going to show up and shoot me for doing this. Like, I don't even know what's going to happen to me, but I know that I've just messed up. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, I walk away for a while and then I come back and look and the whole thing is starting to fill up with paper. (laughs) This giant plexiglass box is now filling up with printer paper that all says Jack Flack rules on it, you know? And so I like, I'm like, Oh, I got to get out of here. And so I go and I find my parents and I'm like, like, you know, whistling, like, like I'm all innocent. And my dad, you know, starts saying, Hey, we should check out, you know, the computers. I'm like, nah, let's not check those out. And uh, he's like, no, 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 let's go, let's go look at the computers, you know. And so we go over there, and now this entire plexiglass thing where the monitor is and the printer, you can't see anything in there. It's just, like, filled with paper. There's paper everywhere in here. 
And the printer is still going, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be bad. Um, and so then I remember, like, the Toys R Us guy coming over and looking at it, and, there, you know, you could open this area with a little key, but he didn't have the key. So then he gets on the phone, and he's, like, calling the manager, and I'm like, Dad, we got to go, we got to go. So, and, and I don't know, I should ask my dad, I don't know if he ever saw what was on the paper in there, because I'm sure if he saw that it said Jack Flack rules, he would have known exactly who had done this. Um, and it was completely unintentional, you know. Like I said, I didn't know that it was going to go to the printer. But, uh, uh, yeah, so about the time they were calling a manager over, we uh, made our escape, <laughs> we walked away. So somebody uh, had fun throwing away a bunch of paper that night. But anyway... So, uh, I, I was hoping that, uh, this podcast would have a list of all the great basic programs that I ever wrote, but I don't, I mean, I didn't write anything that was, uh, terrific and basic, to be honest with you, other than, um, programs that would fill up your, that would print forever if you worked at Toys R Us. Um, probably the, the, the coolest thing, I, I typed in this program one time on the Commodore 64, I had a data set, which was the cassette uh, tape player for the Commodore, which I got a disk drive like a month after I owned the Commodore. So I almost, I mean, I have no experience at all with the cassette player, but I still owned one. And in one, it was like a, uh, some issue, uh, a computer magazine, there was a basic program that if you typed it in, it would, it said it would allow you to digitize your own voice. And, um, so the way it worked is, uh, you could put a cassette tape in the data set and it would read it in and store it. And so, I mean, this is like, you know, being able to hear your own voice on a computer was just unbelievable at that time. Like I thought it would be the coolest thing. So I typed this program in and I don't remember how long it was, but I mean, it was long. Like it seemed like a couple hours of typing this thing in and I typed this in and then I, you know, I get up my boom box cause this is the eighties. Right. And I put in my cassette tape, and I'm like, hello, this is Jack Flack. Um, you know, and I record this long thing. And, of course, the message, and you know, because the Commodore only had so much RAM, I think it had to be like 20 seconds long or something. But I do this message where I'm, like, super cool, right? And I get the cassette out, and I put it in the data set. And I play it in to the computer, and it records in. And then this is my impersonation of what it sounds like. I mean, it was horrible quality. And, um, but I, I was so thrilled and, and that mental thing, because I knew what it said, I, it made sense, you know? So then I immediately called Justin, uh, Arcane and I, well, I called his BBS and I uploaded this file and then I called him, you know, voice. I'm like, dude, 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 you gotta listen to this. It's me on the computer, you know? And so he listens to it and he's like, he goes, so what is this called? Jack Flack from the moon? <laughs> <laughs> which is exactly what it sounded like. It sounded like a moon, like an Apollo, you know, moon transmission or whatever. So, uh, that became our little joke that that file was called, uh, Jack Flack from the moon. So anyway, didn't work out too good, but yeah, well, uh, you know, it seemed like you could do anything with basic really. I mean, you couldn't write advanced type games, but all the early text adventures were all written in, in uh, basic. There were all kinds of, uh, games, you know, even, um, all the magazines and stuff that you bought that came out with a monthly, uh, you know, disc, like a magazine disc or whatever would be filled with basic programs. And, um, so it was really pretty impressive, all the stuff you could do with it. So, 
Uh, what happened to BASIC, and what is the evolution of BASIC? Well, first of all, uh, BASIC itself kind of went away. Um, if you go out to... Actually, I, I didn't even know this. I tried this the other day. If you go into Windows 7, uh, into a command prompt and type edit, edit doesn't even come up, which is how I used to write my basic programs was in edit, you know. Um, so I guess we lost that at some point along the way. I just didn't notice it. I guess most people have upgraded to this new fancy thing called Notepad. <laughs> um, but uh, I wrote some great stuff in Notepad, too. Anyway, uh so, yeah, edit's gone and basic's gone. Um, they don't come with Windows anymore. Uh, the first thing that replaced basic was uh, a programming language from Microsoft called Visual Basic. And so the idea was, uh, you know, there was Visual C and there were um, uh, later, you know, Visual Studio, the entire, um, well, the entire studio. But Visual Basic was supposed to be this... Um, step in between basic and some of the other, you know, more advanced, uh, visual studio languages. So I didn't get into visual basic for a long time. Uh, and a friend of mine at work, his name was Ernie started telling me about visual basic. And this was in like 2001, 2002, somewhere around there. Uh, and so I got a copy of, I think it was VB six. It might've been VB five back then, but I think it was VB six. And um, I installed it, and I didn't get it. I didn't get the idea of object-oriented programming at all. Um, and the difference between that and BASIC was basically, in BASIC, uh, everything is, is sequential. It starts from one, you know, you, you set your line numbers, 10, 20, 30, whatever, and it runs in that order. And if you need to go somewhere else, you do a go-to, or if you need to go somewhere else and return, it's a go-sub. But basically... Um, you know, it's the sequential listing of a program and visual basic, um, or any object oriented programming language is not like that in, uh, in those languages, you basically set up tiny, smaller programs or routines that run whenever you do something. Uh, and so, you know, for like a week, it just didn't click. And then one day it clicked. I was like, oh, I get it. You know, you draw what you want your program to look like and you put your buttons and whatever. And then when you click them, they run little programs. Uh, and so I went to town on visual basic. Let me tell you, um, I have, let me go over here real quick on my website, uh, robohara.com. If you type in forward slash software, there are a bunch of visual basic programs that I have written over the years. And, um, some of them, I, I used to rate them. I, they used to have a little rating thing on a scale of 1 to 10 of um, how useful I thought these programs would be for other people to kind of keep people from downloading stuff like I had. Um, and I think I pulled all these. Let me look here. Yeah, I pulled a couple off. I had written things that were actually like only good for me at work, but I, I put them up there as just kind of like a, you know, whatever. But, um, yeah, they wouldn't work for anybody else, so... Uh, but a couple of here, I'm just looking through here. Batchomatic is like the greatest program I ever wrote. Uh, and what Batchomatic does is it has a couple of windows, and on the right hand side, you can write simple batch files like DOS uh, batch files. And on the left hand side, there's a window where you can put lists. So, for example, you can put a list of machines. So, on the right, 
like at work, I use um, the PS tools, if you're familiar with those, which is a, a collection of tools that allow you to do things to other machines. So one thing I could do is a PS shutdown, uh, which will shut down, or uh, I use it for rebooting machines. So I could put PS shutdown, put the switches in there for reboot, and then I put the variable in there for the machine name. Over on the left-hand side of the list, I put in all the machine names, and I click go, and it creates these batch files. But there's a whole bunch of different variables in there. For example... Uh, there's a thing in there called spawn mode. So let's say I need to reboot uh, 50 machines. If you don't do spawn mode, it creates one batch file and it goes through and it reboots each machine one at a time, which is how a batch file works, right? If you click on the spawn button and hit go, it creates 50 batch files, each one rebooting one machine, and it launches them all at the same time. So basically with Batchomatic, I can do things like reboot 50 machines all at the same time. Uh, or if I'm looking for if a file exists on a thousand machines or five thousand machines, I write a very simple little script or you know a batch file. I put all the machines I want to check in the left hand thing and hit go. And if it does, I have the machine you know have it write uh, the machine name to a, a shared directory or something. So, um, but I mean, Batchomatic has saved me. I was going to say hours, but weeks, months. Uh, of time at work, you know, doing these type of tasks. So, and uh, batch, I'm not Batchomatic's free. I'm not plugging it, but uh, but it is out there on that share. Uh, let's see what else is out here. Crawl paper was a uh, thing I wrote, which automatically changed your wallpaper, uh, and you could schedule that to run. Uh, it doesn't work anymore with Windows Seven, I don't believe. So that was it's, um, not that impressive anymore. Uh, Ecoder Ring is a great program I wrote, which was an encryption uh, program. And basically what it allowed you to do is send secret codes back and forth to people. And um, it basically uses a one-time cipher. And so that you and your friend have to agree on something, and it could be anything on the Internet. It could be a text file. It could be a picture. It could be whatever you want. And so you both put that in, and then there's some other variables you could set to even make the code more unique. Uh, and once you put that stuff in, it will generate a code of basically a list of ASCII numbers that you can transfer to a friend. And if they run the program and they put the same code in and the same pad, um, then it will decrypt the message. And it works really good. And because it's a one-time cipher, uh, if you use something like, uh, I've used the Google logo, the, the graphic up at the top being the, um, the cipher pad. So as long as nobody else knows what the cipher pad is, the codes are, cannot be brute force broken. Uh, I put a financial, I mean, I put, um, like a hundred dollar reward and I think I raised it one time to a couple hundred dollars and then I got a little scared that somebody was going to actually brute force it somehow, but I really don't think it could be brute forced. Um, but in the readme, I, I uh, always said that the weakest part of uh, ecoder ring is not uh, that the code can be broken. It's that, you know what the decryption key is. So, uh, you know, I, I kind of said in a tongue in cheek manner, it will, stand up to brute force attacks. It will not stand up to you being waterboarded. Uh, it won't stand up to someone torturing your kids in front of you. And so what I mean by that is, uh, you know, if someone intercepts your message and is going to try to brute force it, I don't think they would ever be able to crack the code. However, if a three-letter agency intercepted it and put you under arrest and decided to pull out your fingernails, 
I think the code would be broken very quickly, especially by me, because I have a very low tolerance of pain, uh, and I would give them everything they wanted, including the source code. So, there you go. Uh, Encoder ring. There's a few other things on here. I wrote a um, renamer here. Um, Here's one that I, I wrote in Visual Basic called Shadow Print. And uh, my dad online goes by the shadow. So this is a program I wrote for him. And he emailed me one day and he basically said, why am I not able in this day and age to right click a folder and print that directory out or copy it to the clipboard? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, doesn't it seem like that should be something built into Windows now? I mean, it's not like this is the first version of Windows, right? Actually, it's Windows 7. Um, So you would think that by now they would build that into Windows, but they never have. Uh, and so I wrote Shadow Print, and all Shadow Print does is it has a file browser on the left-hand side, and when you browse down on the right-hand side, it keeps track of uh, all the folders and all the files that are in that, and uh, you can there's a button to click copy to clipboard, and one for print, and one for save. Uh, and there are some radio buttons that say uh, files only, folders only, or both. Uh, so very simplistic things that you could do with Visual Basic, just like Basic, but, um, you know, definitely usable little utilities. Uh, so anyway, th- that was Visual Basic, and now uh, what I've moved on to is uh, VB Script, Visual Basic Script, which is uh, basically the command line version of Visual Basic. It allows you to do a lot of the same things, but uh, at work, th- Visual Basic, or VB Script, has really proved to be invaluable. I mean, I'm constantly... Uh, being tasked with doing something. I just, on this project I'm working on, uh, one of the things I have been tasked to do is um, update an attribute in Active Directory for 9,500 users. So there's a couple of ways to do that. One is to go through the GUI, uh, go through Active Directory users and and computers, and right-click every single user, and go in and find this custom attribute, and... um, Uh, change it, you know, but it's much easier to write a VB script that pulls up each user, uh, and again, just like what I did with uh, Batchomatic, you can input all your users from a text file, or you could just, you know, say every user object in the domain. That's a little scary when you start doing that, but it's possible. Um, But you say read from this text file, every user, and on every one of those users, go in and update this uh, specific attribute, and then when you're done, run a report, uh, read the attribute back and show that it got changed. And so, um, uh, yeah, VB script. I mean, like I said, it, it's, um, doesn't look like basic anymore. Um, not like the old days with the line numbers and stuff like that. But, uh, in general, I mean, the idea is still the same and I, um, you know, I wanted to mention this. I didn't know where, but there's, there's been this thing and, and it's been, uh, the quote's been attributed to a couple different people, but there's, there's this saying, that if you learned, if you were first exposed to basic programming, uh, then it's very difficult to learn the new ways of programming, like object-oriented programming, like I experienced, or um, either different, you know, languages today. And so, um, I don't believe that. And I've read that, but I don't believe it. And the reason why is because even though. Uh, like VB script, like the syntax is completely different than basic. The 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 main part, I mean, the the general idea 
of a program running one line at a time and doing things in order and looking for errors and troubleshooting, that's all the same. I mean, it hasn't changed since that first program I wrote on the TRS-80 back in 1980. Um, so years and years and years of writing programs and batch files, even though those things were um, you know, really elementary compared to what a lot of people did with programming, it, it really seems like it was preparing me for the stuff that I do today. Um, so yeah, VB script. Now I've moved on. Uh, I mean, I still do a lot in VB script, but I'm just getting my feet wet with the PowerShell just because, um, you know, a lot of these things are that I talk about are Microsoft centric. I know there's a lot of, you know, people that do Perl, um, or bash or, or what, um, you know, different things for Linux or other operating systems. But my work environment is almost a hundred percent Microsoft centric. So, um, you know, these are the tools basically that I need to survive in my workplace. Um, but, uh, yeah, so PowerShell is kind of the next evolution of VB script, but it has a lot of, uh, well, it has all the, um, .NET object classes in it. And so you can more easily interact with things like Active Directory, um, users, objects, things like that. So I'm just starting to get my feet wet with, uh, PowerShell, but VB script has really been a godsend. So that's, that's one side of the evolution of basic programming. And then the other side is that the actual basic, like what we grew up with, what I grew up with, uh, programming on, has been brought onto modern computers. It just hasn't been done uh, by default on your machine anymore in your operating system. But there is, uh, Microsoft released a version of basic called Small Basic in 2008. That's a free download. You can just Google Small Basic. Uh, or I'll put that in the show notes. There's also a version called Free Basic, and then there's a version called Dark Basic, which uh, has a lot of stuff built in for uh, programming games, building games. Dark Basic has a lot of game-specific uh, commands. But the cool thing about all these, number one, they're all free, um, but similar to, I guess in a big picture, what you would say about Linux, like how it's splintered and how there are all these different builds of Linux or whatever for um, more specific uh, needs. Uh, they did the same thing with basic, like small basic, free basic, dark basic. There's lots of, of splintered off versions of basic now that have different commands. There's a version of, I think, free basic was ported to uh, the Xbox. So there are all these different versions of basic out there, but they're not... Uh, completely compatible. They've all kind of gone off on their own development path and added specific things. So you kind of got to, um, uh, you know, look and see which one meets your needs. And then, like I talked about at the beginning of the show, there's the scratch programming. And I want to pull up this URL, uh, that Rex sent me. And, um, uh, you could go to scratch, uh, MIT scratch at, um, scratch.mit.edu. And Rex has his own uh, user page, which is that same URL, scratch.mit.edu, forward slash users, forward slash EV, that's Echo Victor, 64 bug, all one word, EV64 bug. Um, and so you could go look at some of the things, uh, the different games that he's favorited, that he's added to. And I'm going to pull up this link here while I'm talking. Open URL, open link. Uh, and, um, uh, Rex did a version, a port of the Atari 2600 version of asteroids. And the physics are a little different than, uh, the version that's on the 2600, but 
the graphics basically look the same and the sound is the same and it's uh it's really i mean uh, just right off the bat it's, it's a cool example of what you could do with scratch and he's added um this little group here is um retro games that people have uh, reproduced in scratch uh, so there's uh, everything like Astro Smash, Space Invaders. There's a version of Miss Pac-Man on here that's phenomenal. Uh, there's Pac-Man, Moon Patrol, uh, a Donkey Kong on here. So there's a lot of cool things. And also, if you just go to that main page I mentioned, scratch.mit.edu, uh, there's all kinds of things like uh, featured projects, um, you know, different kinds of things, uh, videos or not videos, but um, games that people have favorited. Uh, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, you can kind of get a, a, just a cool sampling of what's out there for scratch. And it says, um, check out the 3,158,425 scratch projects from around the world. So, uh, I mean, there's 3 million programs written in scratch hosted here. Uh, and if you want to get started with scratch, you can just download it, uh, and get started programming. It's, I mean, uh, I tell you what, it makes you feel old is when your 11 year old comes to you and, and shows you a basketball game he's programmed. And, um, you know, this kind of gets back to, to bring it back full circle. What I talked about at the beginning of the show about having these arcade games and really wanting my kids to experience, you know, I want my kids to play, uh, Atari 2600 and they do, uh, for about 30 seconds. And then they want to go back to um, the Nintendo DS. It's not even the DS anymore. I used to always say the DS. But, um, uh, you know, for my daughter, it's an iPad Touch. Or either the iPad or the iPod Touch. Um, but, she, you know, she wants to do those things. For Mason, it's um, all about... Uh, right now, it's the PS3, Call of Duty, um, a lot of Minecraft, a lot of stuff like that. So, So the same thing with programming, you know. I mean, I know my kids are smart and I want to get them involved in computers more than just being a computer user. I want them to be able to create with the computer, whether it's art or music uh, or programming or whatever, but I want them to, to have access to these tools like I had, you know? And so I showed Mason basic programming and he thought it was really cool. Um, but you know, there's only so much you could do. I mean, he didn't grow up playing text adventures. Like I, you know, I mean, for me, a great text adventure was, um, you know, a great game. And it's just, I mean, and I still enjoy that being older, uh, you know, looking at those type of games. But if you don't grow up with them, it's difficult to introduce a kid to that today when they've grown up. He's playing Call of Duty right now. So, uh, I mean, not right now. It's um, 11.34 in Daylight Savings Time. It was 10.34 yesterday. Did I mention that? Uh, but, um, so, you know, the experience I want him to have is basic programming because that's the experience I had, but his experience now is scratch programming. And so, you know, um, not saying that you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but maybe I'll have to have him show me, <laughs> uh, some of these things that you could set up at scratch because I've looked at, um, some of the things that Rex and his friends have put together and some of these things. And it's just amazing, uh, what people are doing. You know, like I said, Mason is a member of, uh, they have a scratch, programming group at school and during spring break they're going to have their uh scratch programming computer camp and mason is wanting to go to that so uh maybe he'll get to go to he'll be the first member of the family to go to a computer camp but um 
that's pretty much all I have on basic programming. I mean, uh, you know, like I said, looking back, it was that thing that allowed introductory computer users, people that didn't know how to install a motherboard or RAM or hard drive or whatever. I mean, you just had this computer, but basic allowed you to ha- make this computer do stuff, you know, and it turned it into, it wasn't a game system where you had to plug in a cartridge and rely on somebody else to make those games for you. It was a, a tool where you could make it do what you wanted it to do. And so that's, you know, my memories of basic was just having that computer there and being able to make it do, or try at least to make it do what I wanted it to do. So that's pretty much it for this episode of you don't know flack. I want to thank everybody for listening. I want to thank all the uh, podcasts that have plugged me. Uh, and um, I appreciate everybody that has joined the Facebook page. If you're not on the Facebook page, um, just look up You Don't Know Flack and uh, join the Facebook page. You'll know what's going on behind the scenes on the podcast, when I'm recording, what the next topics are going to be. Um, next episode is number 128, and it only makes sense. Rob Sherwin, uh, when I mentioned that 128 was coming up, he said, well, you're going to do that about the Commodore 128, right? Uh, which seems completely obvious, and I hadn't thought of it till he said that. So I do have to give uh, Rob some credit for coming up with that. But, um, yeah, the uh, next episode, I mean, even though I wasn't a huge 128 user as a kid, I was always Commodore 64, but it just, uh, it's such an obvious uh, tie-in that I have to do it on the Commodore 128. So I uh, look forward to uh, an episode about the Commodore 128 next week. And that's pretty much it for You Don't Know Flag. So send me the feedback. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast. And I will see you guys next week. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.